Hey, Mark. Hey, you all right? Ah, oh, yes. Well, I say yes. My Both my kids have got a vomiting bug, so we were up all night with them, which is Ooh. not the most fun. But um, yeah, and then you start getting paranoid thinking that you're <laughs> going to pick it up too. So we're in that right in the thick of it, right in the eye of the storm. They're both at home, off school today. So if you hear a noise they... in the background, that's that's what it is. Have they come out the other side of it? Like, is there a few hours since the last vomiting? Or no, we're still um, in the in the one, zone. My youngest, Chloe, she's she's out of it, and she's just lying there watching the fox and the hound. We're giving her some classic Disney movies to watch. Um, but Callum's, yeah, he's kind of. We're still looking at the watches, thinking there's definitely one more to come, maybe two more to come. So, yeah, it's all fun and games, really. So how, you, how, was, how was the glamour of Wimbledon? Yeah, it was good. Really good final. I totally got it wrong, my prediction. So we had, I said Djokovic, you said Alcaraz. So I think we should swap jobs. Uh, well, actually, I, I, I can't cycle very fast, maybe not that. But it was really, it was an amazing final. The atmosphere was great. I was a few rows behind Brad Pitt, which was quite cool and a little bit random. Oh, wow. um, yeah, I feel a bit sorry for people like that. I don't know how you get it, but like people wanting to have a selfie with him every three seconds. And he's very cool with that. I guess he's just used to it. But the, the tennis was just brilliant. Real sort of one of those privileged moments to be on court um, for four and three quarter hours. It's a hell of a long time. Um, I, I listened to it on the, I was driving yeah. up to Scotland and listened to it on the radio. It was epic. And I, I watched the first set and I was like, oh, yeah, I, I was going to sit and watch it. I thought, no, I'll just hit the road. Clearly it's going to be a three setter. Djokovic is going to steamroll him. And I don't think anybody after that first, the first five games, whether it's five level, whatever it was, who would have predicted? That's bonkers. That We've got a, a name has popped up in the waiting room, which is today's guest, which is uh, Glenn Moore, who I think of uh-huh. as mock, mock the Week. And someone suggested him as a, as a good guest, and I'd seen him on that p- particular. I didn't realise he also does a bit of sports presenting on the side, so he should be a, a good little um, combination so you, for us. So you're telling me he's a sports journalist and he's a stand-up comic? Yeah, basically. So, best, so basically, best doing, doing what you do <laughs> plus another job. Yeah, probably even better. Probably. And, and I guess he's, yeah. he probably he probably guessed that Alcaraz would win, not Djokovic. But but let, yeah, let, me, sure let, let me let let's me let's ask him. Let's we'll ask get, him. Well, let's get a sports expert in. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. Hi. You look like you're somewhere way more professional than than, oh, than I'm me in, in the uh... back bedroom and. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm in. I'm I'm utilizing the Absolute Radio Studio at the moment. You're not live on air. It's all fine. <laughs> this is all fine. Um, sorry about all the technical fast. I think no. you, you must be the best, the clearest sounding guest that we've had. Oh, yes. Perfect. Ever. Okay. What a, what a I mean, yeah, yeah, prestigious title. And you, can put, you, your, your, you can put that on your poster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Please, thank you so Chris much. For, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. We're really delighted oh, thanks to, so to much meet for you. Me. Yeah. And we were, just, we were just chatting before you came on. So, yeah, you're a sports broadcaster, a sports journalist, as well as being an accomplished stand-up comic. So basically saying to Matt that you're doing basically twice the job that Matt does. You know? Yeah. Or I kind of do both jobs at half quality. (laughs) So I'm really bad at both. So how did you get into the the radio and the broadcasting? Was that before comedy? Was it after? Was it alongside? It was well before comedy. It was where I, I wanted to be a newsreader when I was about five years old, which is weird. And, um, I was, it was just like, for some reason, I just decided at the age of five, I remember, watching Home Alone as a kid or having wanted to be in like movies when I was like as young as I can remember and watching Home Alone as a kid and telling my mum, oh my God, when I grow up, I want to be like Macaulay Culkin. I want to be in movies. And my mum being like, well, to have been in like movies and stuff, you kind of need to have been in like TV shows and adverts when you were like two and three years old. And so I got told at the age of five, I'd left my life ambition too late. 
And so <laughs> then went so far the other way and was like, well, I need something serious. I need something really deadly serious. And I thought, well, there's nothing more deadly serious than being like a newsreader. So went my whole teenage years and stuff, knowing that's kind of what I wanted to be. And uh, went to uni and trained to be a journalist after that. And um, uh, by the time I got my first job as like a roving reporter and like a sports reporter at a radio station up in South Yorkshire, I had done like maybe one or two stand-up gigs and I got approached by a couple of agents who were sort of like, hey, do you want to attempt a career at comedy? And because I'd only done two gigs and I'd spent my whole life up until that point wanting to be a journalist, I was like, no, because I've this is what I've been training for. And then having done, I mean, I did a couple more stand-up gigs and was like, this is more fun than news. No offense to newsreaders, but, um, you know, I, 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 I'd, I'd rather be uh, rather be McIntyre than Moira. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, and and so at the moment you're you're but you're still doing the the sports um, reporting for for Absolute Radio. Yes, as well so as we, there's a yes. So there's a I'm on the breakfast show, so I have been up for uh, seven or so hours by this point. Um, and wow. there's four of us on air on the show, and we each have our own sort of individual roles. So we're all co-presenting the show. There's Dave Berry, the main presenter, and the other three of us are co-presenters, but we also have an individual role. So there's like a newsreader as well. Uh, and yeah, I do the sport. Amazing. What kind of sport are you? Do you have particular sports you're you're interested in, or are you, as a journalist, you're kind of uh, into all of them? Um, I'd say I'm. I wouldn't say into all of them. I'd say across all of them. Uh, I've had to learn <laughs> to report on lots of sports on the fly. That I've had no experience in or anything like that. Even and it, or even to this day, even if it's not necessarily the rules of a sport, it's it's very diverse in terms of you have to say every surname that you've never heard of when reporting on sports from people across the world. And so Wimbledon, for instance, has, has just happened. And um, every morning, you know, I'd be saying all the names of all the players in the early rounds and the quarterfinals and stuff like that. And then it would get to say half eight and we'd actually have like a live reporter from Wimbledon. And so we'd throw over to them and you hear them telling you all about the Wimbledon players. And I'd hear all those players' names being said and think, oh, that's how it was meant to be pronounced. Okay, I got I got that really wrong. Um so I bet you're forced in the job to then be across loads of sports that you knew, like I knew rugby union. I really didn't know rugby league or anything like that. And it, it, you know, things like that have sort of subtle differences. But um, it was mainly sort of football when I was growing up. I'm a Sheffield Wednesday fan, um, uh, but other than that, have you know a keen interest in all of them. I'd say there's no sport I hate. Did the sports reporting happen by default because you were going down the news line? And did the sport happen just because that was the job, the opportunity that came up? Or? Exactly that. Yeah. It was like a small station in South Yorkshire. And uh, we covered Rotherham, Barnsley, Doncaster, Sheffield. And um, because they could only afford like one newsreader, one roving reporter, you're setting out on everything. So you, one minute, you're at the scene of an arson in a field where someone set, uh, I don't know, a barn alight, uh, and then you're rushing to Sheffield Wednesday's press conference. Um, so it was all really, you know, it was all just a bit of everything. Um, and again, you had to be on top of it. There was a time, you know, I turned up late to a Barnsley press conference once, and I'd missed the press conference, but they said, but I'd been told at the gates, don't worry, it's not too late, the manager will still talk to you. And I walked into the room and there was like 10 guys chatting, and half of them were reporters, half of them worked at Barnsley, and I knew one of them was a manager but I didn't know who. And I had to, through a very awkward half-hour conversation, try and determine who the hell managed this League Two side. Um, and so that, that then forced me to like really be up on every single person who was like involved in sport in South Yorkshire. This was like the time of the 2012 London Olympics as well, so I needed, I needed to be on it. That's very funny because I, I don't cover football really it's in my sports mm. reporting, but I uh, live in Bristol and every now and again, like a London team will come down here and I, I, I went to the Bristol Rovers-Fulham game there were two Fulham central defenders, amazingly Fulham lost and got knocked out, which is a big shock. 
And there was one central defender who scored a great header and the other one that gets sent off. And I interviewed who I thought was the goal scorer, but it was the red card. And that was one of the oh. le less less professional and slightly awkward. <laughs> but also the whole Fulham bus was behind as I was interviewing. No. They cottoned on to what was happening. The guy was very good about it. And uh, this is the first, this is my grand reveal of my hideous error. So I've never, I've never said this before. Oh, no, thank you for sharing. I appreciate that. And, uh, uh, the like podcast counseling. is anonymous, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, the, the nice thing is, having, if, you, if you work in sports journalism to any extent, the kind of nice thing is, is your worst sporting failures will most likely be journalistic as opposed to stuff that happened to you when you were like five years old and has haunted you ever since. It's good to know that even in like your 20s and 30s, you can still have harrowing things happen to you where you humiliate yourself in front of a, a, an yeah. audience much larger than you could have anticipated. Have you done yeah, the that? Worst, the worst is yet to come. You know, <laughs> the worst is yet to come. It could be today. This could be this. You never know. <laughs> I, I'm trying to think. I've, my worst one, journalistically, was as with the aforementioned uh, uh, London 2012, um, I was at the qualifiers and there were loads of people trying out with various sort of like track and field stuff and people sort of attempting to sort of qualify. And inevitably, Jessica Ennis uh, Hill was there and uh, she was trying out all of sort of various disciplines. And I knew, this is so embarrassing, but I knew that she was involved in athletics heavily, but I didn't know which sort of discipline. And so when it came around to interviewing her as a pulled interview with all like these BBC reporters who have been so invested in sport their whole life and a crowd of people who are really invested in, you know, what she had to say. I asked her, the heptathlete Jessica Ennis, if she found it unfair that most of the other people qualifying that day only had to do like one or two sports and they were making her do six. <laughs> and it, it was just... It was so, like, working in comedy, you get to experience the different kinds of laugh that people have, and it was all degrading. It was all the degrading kind of laughter that time. It was really horrible, and she just had to really plainly say to me, I'm a heptathlete. And all I was thinking was, I, I must look up what that means when I get home. <laughs> was she nice about it, though? Because she is lovely. She was she, nice. She, she was okay. really, really nice about it. She was not in any way nasty. Yeah. Everyone, like, honestly, the, the real sort of... The South Yorkshire, well, the Yorkshire big hitters at that Olympics were, everyone I interviewed was really, really nice. And I'd say the nicest ones were, were, were Jessica and the Brownlee brothers were, yeah. the, were, were, were just great. So, so great. Yeah, you do find though, like at the Olympic Games, you get a, a completely different type of journalist that comes to ask you questions. You go to press conferences in every four years, it, it's completely different. So you get the, the cycling specific ones who know everything about it. They know all the technical details. They're asking you very specific questions. And then you get these press conferences with people asking you things like what you what you had for breakfast and what yeah, your favourite <laughs> TV show is and you know and, and you can see the other journalists looking around going oh god you know you're embarrassing us all come on I, it, it's so bad but it's like it's what you have to ask like because I was working at like a music station where all they really cared about was like Ollie Murs and Jesse J this <laughs> 2012 they just wanted all we wanted every week was like a five second snippet from say like Sheffield United's manager going we're looking forward to the match that's all they wanted so I had to go along and just ask questions like that but occasionally, like if it was like an FA Cup tie and, you know, they're playing a Premier League team, you'd suddenly get these reporters from, you know, like the Times and stuff like that, real more like high profile journalists. And they'd be going, that, um, if you remember back in 1978, that's throw in in the 71st minute. And I'd be sat there like, this is terrifyingly detailed. And I don't need, I don't need any of this info. But you feel like an idiot sort of being like, do you enjoy playing football? It's just, it's, <laughs> it's really embarrassing. This, the so I apologize. Sorry. I was just going to say Wimbledon is an absolute prime example of that. So you have these it's amazing sort of, they call it 
the theatre where you go and interview the players afterwards and you have this press conference yeah. and you have someone asking, oh, do you remember at that point at 15.40 down, you were 2-1 up, but you'd lost the first set uh, and that shot down the line. And, and so you have that conversation. And then suddenly from the back of the room, what do you think of Russian tennis? And then <laughs> so, so, suddenly, suddenly we skip to a, a question about towels to then... Uh, <laughs> Someone else from a sort of the front, a national paper asking about their, you know, celebrity girlfriend or Instagram or whatever. And it's the most weird and disparate bunch of questions. They're so patient, the players with it. But if you read the transcripts, it's like some... It's bizarre. It doesn't sound like a yeah. one-way conversation <laughs> no, at all. And you, you kind of want to say when you ask those questions, when you're for one having to ask those asinine questions, you almost want to look around to the other journalists and go, obviously, I don't want to know the answer to that. I don't care. I'm saying this on behalf of the listener, okay? You have to sort of, sorry in advance. Have you ever seen yeah. that the clip? Um, it's an F1 press conference, and there's maybe about six of the drivers in there. There's, I think, Alonso, Vettel, Hamilton, Rosberg, big hitters. And um, and there's, I think it was a German journalist starts asking this question, but it's not really a question. He just talks. and And you can see that one of them gets the giggles and then he looks across and catches, I think it was, I think it's Vettel catches yeah. Hamilton's eye. And then they all just start, you can see the shoulders starting to shake. They all get the, <laughs> they all get the giggles. And yeah, I'm sure it was Vettel came back. Oh, this is a really crap anecdote because it's not going anywhere, but you've got it. You go on YouTube and you put F1 press conference, funny, Vettel, I'm sure it'll come up. I'll, I'll need to do that afterwards, actually. Yeah, I'm so entertained by any junket or anything like that going wrong. I remember <laughs> one hearing about one where, like, I think Tom Hanks and Tim Allen were being interviewed doing the rounds for, like, one of the Toy Story films. And they got interviewed by, again, I think a reporter in, say, Switzerland or something like that, or in Germany. And about halfway through the interview, they suddenly realized, wait, on, in Toy Story, we're not on screen and we're dubbed in your country. We're not in your film. They were like, <laughs> we're, not in the, we're not in your German film. There's no, like, you don't need to be talking to Tom Hanks. Yeah, I, I I wish something like that had happened to me. Instead I, just had like my, instead, I just had my own embarrassment to deal with of mistakes I'd made. So, in terms of being on the other side of the fence, as a, in sport, did you did you do much sport at school? What kind of things did you get involved in? Did you did you enjoy playing sport? I did. Um, in that, I was um, swimming was like my main thing, and I I loved swimming. Not to like a you know ne ne never to the extent of like oh I'd quite like to do something like this sort of professionally. But it was like a big part of my life. And I would go like before school, I'd swim before school like every day. And uh, I went to a school that it's, oh, it, I always hate talking about the school I went to because I'm aware I've got a really posh sounding voice and I'm aware I'm about to say my school had a swimming pool. Now, it was not a posh school <laughs> and I'm not from a posh background, but somehow for some reason, <laughs> decades previously, the school and maybe it had been on better times had a swimming pool and they still had it. And so uh, we used to be able to like swim at the school before we, you know, we, before we started classes and stuff like that. So that was like my big thing. But the school was really football focused. And at the time, I just had no interest in football. I didn't get into football until I was like 14. And being the nerd that I was, it was like FIFA and Pro Evo that got me into football. It was through like playing it by a video game. And so it was an, the school then based your abilities in other sports based on how you, how good you were at football. Because I'd never played football before. I was obviously in like the bottom set for football. What that then meant was you were in the bottom set for everything. So I was then, when it came to like swimming and water polo, I was in the group of people who couldn't swim. But I was like, <laughs> no, I can do this like at a at a county level. Like, come on, let me. And so that was, that was kind of really frustrating because we'd spend most of us swimming lesson like holding each other and gently lowering each other into the water and it was like come on and, were, and it was like why are we doing this and it's like because you didn't score a volley earlier it was like it, it didn't make any sense it made no sense whatsoever 
was it not good though? You would because you were like the, the big fish in the small pond. Then you would be the kind of best at swimming in that group. No, because the swimming was all at the same time. So you'd be at the shallow end, and all your uh, mates are playing like water polo and have these great matches at the other end of the pool. And it it was just a bit. Not that there's any shame in not being able to swim, but it was just it was just it was really frustrating, and it was it was yeah it was it was embarrassing. Um, so that was kind of tough, and then, and then it was weird. My score would sort of throw you head first into sports that you'd never really sort of done before. So we'd still we you know we it would just be football all year, like all year, and then we'd have a sports day where suddenly because I was tall, I'd be called up to like do the high jump and represent the school at the high jump. And it was like, but you've not taught us how to do this. And so I remember doing sports day and like learning how to do the sort of Fosbury flop and stuff like that. And then obviously just the pressure getting to me of doing, of having to be physical in front of a crowd. And I remember just launching myself like hands by my sides, like I was like, like just like sort of pogo stick and just launching myself head first into the bar. Um, and just, uh, it was just so degrading. But yeah, it was, there was no reason why we were being made to do this. It was strange. You'd, 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 you'd be playing football every day, every time it was PE, every time it was games. And then they'd be sort of like, you just weren't good at the shot put today, Glenn. It was like, why do you think? <laughs> why the, do you with, think with that the high is? Jump, I would have gone for yeah, the yeah. dramatic yeah. clap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get everyone rolled up. <laughs> make yeah, it, e- make it even worse when you head <laughs> back the bar. <laughs> yeah. Bye. So eventually it was like, I managed to get onto like the water polo team at school. I think after a while they were like, right, we'll make an exception in this case. But it still meant for every other sport, you were just you were just at the bottom. It was, it was ridiculous. One of my good friends, um, did the pole vault when he was, I think, 13. He became Scottish under-14s school, or Scottish schools under-14s pole vault champion. And I was like, I, I don't remember ever um, no. being offered pole vault at school. It's quite an extreme thing. It's quite a dangerous thing. And he's like, oh, yeah, no, no. I mean, there were only two people in it. And yeah. uh, both, both from my school. <laughs> we were the only school in the country that offered pole vault. So uh, we were guaranteed the top two places, and I beat him. So I became the, the Scottish pole vault champion. Um, the, sh- shout out to Mike Hunter. Hope he's yeah. <laughs> There's a uh, the, uh, like, I found this. Uh, there was like a handball team at uni, and they were like, "Yeah, we we're basically pretty much on an international level. Like for England, we're like pretty much the best in the country." And I, a, a guy I went to school with was like, kind of okay at football, like not great, but he was like on the cusp of going to potentially be able to represent Yemen internationally at football uh, because there just wasn't there weren't leagues and stuff you know there's certain countries where if you sort of go oh, okay like a friend of mine works as a sports journalist and wrote a book recently about about football in kosovo and how it's only recently become like a big sort of professional thing because they just didn't have the infrastructure and couldn't do that um so that's the trick if you want to be a professional sports person choose a sport that you know nobody nobody else is doing get your kids into skateboarding early because it's only recently <laughs> become the olympic discipline that's it's what you getting, need to do it's getting big now there was it's a guy massive. in now when was it late late 1990s and it was coming up towards the Sydney Olympics and he was living in America, but his family were Eritrean and he decided that he wanted to go to the Olympics. Um, and he basically just sat there and thought, what sport shall I go for? Oh. I can ride a bike. I think I'm going to do cycling at the Olympics in two years time. So didn't really appreciate that there was some specific qualification process. Yeah. And he got, he got this bike and he turned up at um, two World Cups, one in Berlin, one in, in the south of France in Hier. And we weren't in Berlin, but we were in, in here the week after. And we were we heard this rumor about this guy who turned up and did the, the one kilometer time trial, which is four laps of the track on your own. Mm. So basically you thought, well, I can just get on a bike, ride four laps, that doesn't really matter the time. And the winning times were around about one minute, like one minute zero, one minute one. And he did a one minute 43. 
and basically people were you know the crowd nobody knew who he was or where he'd come from and he just turned up on the track and sort of could could barely keep it on the track because it's not that easy to keep you know this track yeah i can imagine yeah but you're not used to seeing complete novices turning up at a world cup and it was a bit like eric the eel or even you know yeah. um, eddie the eagle eddie, eddie the eagle, eagle yeah, yeah. And eric the eel same sort of thing and this so then the, his his kind of um reputation preceded him so the following week we're in this world cup and we heard rumors that he was going to be there too and we saw him warming up and went across and countries were giving him you know we gave him a, an aero helmet to borrow and another country loaned him a, a disc wheel for his bike and trying to give him tips about you know how to get out the start gate straight and all this stuff and in the end he, he did a start and his, he got a puncture halfway in the first lap so he had to restart and he put him off at the very end so it's done in reverse order normally the world champion goes last so the world champion went up, did his time, and oh. then the final, the final rider to go from Eritrea, this guy comes <laughs> out, you know, the whole crowd, and they, they'd already seen him at the start and knew what the story was. So everybody was clapping and cheering, and he got up and he, he went round and he beat his personal best by two seconds and did like a 139. But oh. it was, he got the biggest cheer, you know, the, the guy almost broke the world record, the heat before him, and they were like, <laughs> well, well done, that was very good. And then this guy gets up, there's a 139, and the place are on their feet going absolutely wild. But um, but this, the sad end of the story was he didn't realise you actually have to get you can't just turn up and say I want to ride for Eritrea you've got to yeah go yeah I was going to points so he didn't make it to the Olympic Games but um, but fair Still, play to him you know that's yeah but it, it would have been a good story. He went- he went to the qualifiers, which is better than so many more, which is, you know, better than better than two out of the three of us have done. Exactly. You know? it gave I, it a go. I love these things. There was one at the Winter Olympics I went to where I can't remember. I think this girl was from America, but had some Hungarian roots or something like that. I'm probably totally getting the countries wrong. And, you know, the sort of half pipe, it's the sort of curved yeah. bit of, of snow. And you come down that and these guys do and girls do these amazing tricks and flips and whatever else. She literally just came down it and just went, woo. Woo, back and forth, <laughs> as, as, as I would do, and scored like 18 or something just for getting down as everyone else was getting like 99 and doing triple flips. But I just thought, I just thought it was magnificent, but really celebrated as though she'd done well, straight-faced. Um, what super- is that thing, you know, that the Olympics should have a, a person who is, you know, just the average, the average Joe, so you can see, in the set, like, I, I, a weird comparison to make, but I found like, um, I've never really enjoyed a movie like, say, The Incredible Hulk, because... Uh, I remember the Eric Banner one from like 2003 or whatever. Most of the film takes place in the desert. So you're watching this huge green man in the desert and you go, but if he's not next to skyscrapers, I don't know how big he's meant to be. So this doesn't look impressive. <laughs> you need someone to be like, you need, to, so the commentators can point down the lens of a screen and go, this is you, this is how you do it, if you did it. <laughs> Didn't they, they do need that though? With, was it not, um, who's the BBC sports reporter, um, Mike somebody, what's his surname? Bush, Bushel? Mike Bushel. Yeah, who's brilliant. I, I think he's yeah. hilarious. And he, you know, he doesn't do it on purpose, but at the time when he was interviewing the the swimming team, I think it was up at the World Champs or the Olympics or something, and he was in the yeah. in the little shell in the pool and he stepped forward to interview them with the, the stick in his hand <laughs> and he didn't realise there was a shelf and he just went straight into the pool. <laughs> I remember this and, now, yeah, oh, yeah. Live on air. And he's he's a, he's game for a laugh. He'll do anything. He'll try all the different sports. But he, I'm pretty sure he ran at the British um, Indoor Athletics Championships a couple of years ago for the 60 meters to for that very reason to show yeah, the, just, the difference he, between a, a normal human being and these elite athletes who are you know a different breed even if it's just a, a, a like an animated thing that they sort of cgi into the, I'd, I'd, I'd want it in formula one as well i'm like i, I mm. can't really appreciate how fast these cars are going they need someone in a voxel astra <laughs> <laughs> right at the back really taking up space so if you if you were going to do any if you had that opportunity to be the benchmark in any sport which sport would you choose to be Layperson, 
getting up on the to start. Be, to, be, to be just the person representative. Yeah. I think it would be something do? like, it would be something like the hammer throw, something, because something where you'd, or, uh, do you know what, the pole vault? Because like you said earlier, I've never had access to that. I, and I don't know how you find out you're good at it. So I think that we go, right, this is how you do on your first time with a pole. I wouldn't know where to put it into the ground, where, how you're meant to move your body, why that would then propel me. Why a stick that's multiple, 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 multiple times lighter than me, why that can throw me up into the air. Definitely yeah. that. And I mean, it would be I, fun I, to sell. I mean, I'd probably break my legs doing it. And it would probably be, be, be one of those like sporting injuries where they have to like cut to the news and they don't even show you the replay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is a, it's a bizarre I do thing. That, I do that for my country, Chris. I'd do that. Oh, we're impressed. That's great. But it, I was a bit of a name drop here. I was chatting to Daley Thompson about this, about the pole vault a few months mm -hmm. ago and saying to him, how do you do that first? Because there has to be a first time. Yeah. Where you, don't, you don't know what you're doing. The first time where you, you know, you can do all the running up and down, holding the pole, you can do all that stuff, but there's got to be a first time you commit and you stick the pole in that little hook or whatever it is in the ground and commit and go for it. And it must be terrifying because the poles are long and you're going to be going high and you're basically going to put your feet first and all that stuff. You know, how do you do it? And he said, well, they have like foam pits around and they do it in yeah. a safe environment where you can fall into it. But, but he said, but you're right. You just, there is that first time where you have to have that leap of faith and just, just go for it and hope it, it works out. But God, it looks terrifying. They should do it on the sort of backroom staff as well, to some extent. They should get an average member of the public to try VAR because obviously, you know, VAR is obviously difficult or get a member of the public to do refereeing and be like, look how many offside decisions you miss. Give the referees a bit of a break or the, um, they should have just like, this is how long Formula One would take if the mechanics were just a like quick fit and they walk over, <laughs> yeah. give your tire yeah. a few kicks and go, yeah, it's going to be a it's gonna be a couple of weeks that. We reckon we can get the parts in my mind. I was going to say, on the pole vault, one of the most magnificent things I've ever seen with the pole vault, I'm going to say it was Berlin, maybe, European Athletics Championships, the mascot did the pole vault. Uh, oh. it, it turns out it was a, a you know multidiscipline athlete, but it was incredibly impressive to to to, to see because you see all these ludicrous mascot races and whatever else. But actually, yeah. seeing, seeing a mascot do the pole vault was quite impressive. Um, yeah, yeah slightly with like, I think it'd be alarming if they did it for like fencing or something like that because it would have to take a sword and just fall backwards, and you'd be sort of like, oh my god, they they stabbed <laughs> Wendville. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love the I love all these uh, mascots that kick off. You know, it could be little fights between rival mascots and yeah. and it's obviously all been set up but then you can see when it escalates um but yeah hours of fun on youtube when you start going down a, <laughs> oh, a, for sure. a rabbit hole of uh, that YouTube and stuff. uh mascots observing uh silences is always very <laughs> it shouldn't be funny but it really really is <laughs> yeah the solemnity as they stand there oh the, it's great yeah, yeah. Well, like a giraffe with its head bowed down that sort of thing yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. So tell me how you got into 
stand-up comedy is? How did it go from from being, you know, wants to be a newsreader age five to then <laughs> that that kind of venture into comedy? It was fully by accident. It was a hundred percent by accident. I'd done like I still wanted to do like uh, when I was a kid. I still enjoyed doing like plays, like outside of school and stuff like that. I enjoyed being on stage. I enjoyed like at least attempting to entertain people. And um, I think I was in like plays at uni and I really enjoyed being in comedies and it was really satisfying when you said a line and it got a big laugh, but there was, it was always accompanied with a slight sense of emptiness of like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't come up with that though. That's just me saying, that's me saying like an old Alan Aitborn <clears throat> line or whatever. Um, and so it always felt really tempting to like, you know, try and write jokes myself and stuff like that. But I hadn't, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd written I tried to write jokes even when I was like 11 or 12 years old. I don't know for what purpose. I think I just saw it as like a creative writing thing. And they were real like Christmas cracker-esque jokes. Like they functioned, but they're not, you know, they're not, no one's going to laugh at them. And I, I remember doing that when I was like 11. But um, basically what happened was there was this, uh, my, I was at the University of Sheffield and they used to have this um, student comedy festival every year, which is a really good idea. It was, it, it was like, uh, it, you know, it was like, they get university comedy societies from around the country to come up. So like the big headliner on the Saturday night was always like the Cambridge Footlights because they'd spawned so many people like Rich Diawadi and, you know, Stephen Fry, David Mitchell and uh, Emma, Emma Thompson, all these sort of great people. So they were like the big Saturday night headliners. Then you had like the Bristol one on Friday and Leeds on Sunday, that sort of thing. Um, and as part, because it was just so in the students union that weekend, you'd have so many comedy events happening. Um, they'd always have little open mic nights just if anyone wanted to give it a go for the first time. Now, I had no intention of doing that. I was going along to watch a friend do their first ever gig. Um, and basically, the compare was coming from another city. I think he was coming from Leeds. And he got stuck in traffic and couldn't make it. And my friends who were running the festival sort of said, do you want to, if we give you like 20 minutes, can you host? You don't have to make any jokes. You just have to go, welcome to the show. Welcome to the stage, this person. It's not going to be too nerve-wracking. You're not under any pressure to make anyone laugh. They're like, but... Yeah, I've got 20 minutes. So if you do want to try any jokes, that'd be handy. 20 um, minutes. So it, 20 minutes. That's maybe that's a bit a, less than that. It might have been a lifetime. That must have been horrendous. It was a lot terrifying the thought of having to stand there for that length of time. Yeah, essentially. And I was given wow. only about that amount of time to prepare for it as well. But I sort of um you know, sort of went backstage, tried to scribble down as many thoughts I had in my head of like observational stuff or stuff I'd always wanted to if ever I'd pictured myself on stage on what the week or something uh, you know anything i'd ever envisaged saying i was like well now's a chance i can say it um and it was t only about i mean there's probably about eight people in the audience i i, I can weirdly i can remember who was in the audience i cannot remember anything i said but um i was I, I had to go on for yeah i was on for maybe like 10 minutes in the end and it flew by but then i just had to just come on in between each of the acts and go that was such and such a person please be your hands together welcome to the stage this next person actually it was quite pain-free but I quite enjoyed it. And I think my friends knew that it was something I was interested in doing, but I didn't ever want to sort of display what I thought was the big headedness of ever saying, I'm going to try stand-up comedy because I think there is an inherent big headedness in someone saying that because they're going, I think I can make people laugh. And I think that's a really <laughs> unattractive quality in someone anyway. But um, they, my friends knew I was never going to do it. So they there was this... Um, a, a comedy competition that's just for students called the Chortle Student Comedy Award. And um, my friends basically signed me up for it without me knowing. And then I uh, I got accepted to sort of perform as part of it. So it, I, I had about two months to sort of prepare like a five-minute set. And so, yeah, went on stage and the gig went well. And unfortunately, it's still on YouTube. I can't get rid of it. Um, and uh, so I got, I got through to the next round of that. And then my next gig was the semifinals. And I remember talking to the other acts backstage and they're all like, uh, so where were you last weekend or where are you this weekend? And I was like, seeing my friends. I had no idea that they meant, you meant to gig every, you meant to gig like every night of the week. That's what you meant to do. Because I was like, with students. I hadn't done it. I hadn't done a gig for like three months and I did the semifinals and was lucky enough to get through to the final and so I had to go to, up to the Edinburgh Festival to 
to do the final. And I remember thinking, right, here's, here's the rule. I will, if I win, I will try and go into comedy and I'll abandon the whole news reading thing. And if I don't win, I'll abandon comedy completely and go fully into news reading. That's the rule. And I came second and I was like, ah, oh, that's tricky because that's nearly, <laughs> oh man, what do I do? Um, and so I thought I might just try and continue it as a hobby. But because, because all the videos were up on YouTube and stuff, I then got a few agents sort of got in touch. And I remember a guy getting in touch with me and saying, um, do you, do you, I'm, an, I'm an agent, do you want to meet up in London? And so I traveled, sort of got the megabus down to London and sort of met up with him sort of thinking, where's this sort of going? And he was like, yeah, I manage Ricky Gervais. Do you want, do you want representation? And I was like, oh my God. And wow. uh, then ended up, but I, I stupidly said to him, I've literally just got my first ever job as a newsreader. And that's what I spent my whole life gearing up towards. So do you mind if I don't? And I, I, I do you mind if I come back to you in like a year? And he was like, no problem at all. And obviously in like a year's time, he was then, he, he managed other people and stuff like that. And so that never sort of came to fruition, but it was like, I, it, yeah, it was a really weird moment because I was like, I, I spent my entire life up to this point being so fixated on, this is the job I want. This is definitely the job I want. And then by the time I got my first job, I'd done like three stand-up gigs and was like, oh, this is better. <laughs> I, I, like, I, I really like this. So that's kind of how, the, that, yeah. But it, so it was like, it was fully by accident. And I was very reluctant going into it as well. I was, I, I really only, in the first two years that I'd done, the first two years or so after my first gig, I was doing maybe one gig every six months or so. I just wasn't, I just didn't know how to start. I didn't know anyone involved in comedy. Didn't know anyone, anyone who worked in comedy. I had no idea how you apply to gigs or what do you do? Do you turn up to a show and just say, can I go on? I, 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 didn't, I had no idea what to do. I had no contacts or anything like that. So I really had to sort of start from scratch. And so it was through stuff like those stand-up comedy competitions that sort of helped me. That was the most structured way I knew how to get into it because I knew that if you got through to the final, there's going to be loads of big wigs in the audience and you might get sort of work that way. And so the following year after that student one, by this point, I'd done four gigs, you know, not many more. But there was a competition called Say You Think You're Funny, which happens at Fringe every year. And it's been won by people like Lee Mack and Peter Kay and stuff like that. And I'd, I'd previously been on a Wikipedia page and every year, if I looked at just the 10, 10 or so finalists, every single one of them was someone I'd heard of or works in comedy full time. And I was like, I really want to do this competition. And I got through to the final of that. But um, I was waiting to hear if I was going to get through. To the, and I, I died so badly in the final. I had a really bad gig. But in the, in the, in the build-up to the final, I was waiting to hear if I was going to be in the final. And that day, I was meant to be interviewing Jessica Ennis because the London Olympics were about a month away. And my boss was like, look, it's the last interview we've got with Jess, so let's make it a good one. You know, you've got to interview her. And I was waiting on a phone call. I knew I was going to hear by this date whether or not I was in the final. And um, I was meant to have this long half-hour chat with, with, with Jess and went around to a, either a house or her agent's house, I can't remember, and I was sat there chatting to her and stuff like that and having this real in-depth conversation. And she was, by this point, I'd interviewed her so many times. She was really forthcoming with just really interesting anecdotes and stuff like that and got about 10 minutes into the interview and I felt my phone buzzing in my pocket and I was like, thanks so much, Jess, bye. It was been lovely. And I, I <laughs> so I could take this phone call. And uh, I went and I, I realized afterwards, I was like, what the hell did I just do? That was such a dumb idea to cut this interview short and I had to go back to my boss and my boss was like, good interview. And I was like, yeah, she had to leave really early. She's <laughs> so unprofessional, man. Um, but, but, but I guess that great. was an ind indicator that, that, that your passion was with the comedy. Exactly. And, that, and that, that was a sign that I was like, oh my God, I care so much about this phone call. I care so much about it. And as soon as I got the phone call and they were like, you're through to the final, I was like, uh, that kept me going happiness wise for like a year. Um, it was, yeah. And I realized, oh, my heart isn't in professional journalism. I just, also, I just wasn't good enough at it. I wasn't, I wasn't good enough. I never, I, I never asked the right, you know, insightful, biting questions that a journalist is meant to. I just asked the most generic things like... Never stole you know, Matt. Like, well, yeah. but, I mean, he's, have you ever had to ask a heptathlete, so. what's a heptathlete? I don't know, Matt. I don't think you have. Had 
<laughs> I haven't asked that one, but I'm sure I've embarrassed myself in other ways. Yeah. Hey, it's not too late to. It's not yeah. too late to. So, so how did you get from there to being invited on to Mock the Week and Russell Howard's TV show it's and such all, a, all these big things? It's <laughs> such a long process. It's such a long process. I mean, I I uh, eventually just said to the radio station I was working at, I was like, do you know what? I need to. I'll kick myself. I've got a tiny bit of momentum because I've been a finalist in a couple of competitions. There's a very, very small amount of momentum, but I know this could potentially lead to paid work and potentially doing something with it. And so I was like, they were fully understanding about, you know, go to, and even my, um, the professor at my uni who was uh, uh, where I did like a journalism masters, even though her whole role was making sure people worked full time in journalism. I had a chat with her Her name was Marie Kinsey. And she was so just, she was, she was so welcoming about the idea. She was like, you got to try, try it, go to London, give this a go for like a year. If it doesn't work out fine, but you've got, you've got to try this. And so I did, and I, I, had, I had no agent at the time, had no idea what I was doing, and was just turning up at any open mic night under the sun. I was gigging anywhere between like nine and 12 times a week because it, it, on a Friday night, you can rush between so many gigs, you know, especially in somewhere like London, you can just, or any city, you can dash between loads of gigs. And when you're starting out that early on, you're only on for like five minutes at a time. So you can fit in multiple gigs in an hour. But I would turn up to these open mic nights where it was just a disaster. The people running them didn't know what they were doing. You'd have maybe three people in the audience and you felt like they weren't there of their own volition. It felt a very hostage situation. And you'd, <laughs> you'd, put, your you'd put your name down on the list of acts and it would be like, there were like 25 acts on, each one doing five minutes. And you go, God, 25 people, I'm, I'm on last. And by this point, there's a, the only other people in the audience and maybe three acts have stayed behind. And it was just, each of those gigs, you're just performing to complete science, no matter how hard you try. No one's up for the gig. Everyone just wants to go home. Really horrible atmospheres. And I, was, I would go back to my home every night with my housemates and just stare at my ceiling as I lay in bed thinking, what the hell have I done? I've got no idea what I'm doing. And um, eventually just got in touch with like a couple of agents and one signed me and she then took care of like booking me into gigs and she was like, I'm going to book you into actual comedy clubs. Like you can, you know, where you turn up on a Saturday night, you get paid, hey, you might even get dinner when you're there and that sort of thing. And so she, she took charge of all that and she was really, really great. And then I moved to a different agency who I've been with since and they would just, um, they've always been great, but it was just still a case of just do every single gig, just keep, you know, and every time you do a gig with another comedian, maybe it turns out they run their own gig in, you know, in, in Northampton. And so they might ask you to do their gig and you do their gig, you meet someone else who runs a gig in the local area and you just sort of build it up from there. And eventually you have sort of a list of contacts. So you, you're sort of, you're having to build your own career, but that, that was quite sort of satisfying to do. And again, like with all these things, it just came down to luck. I did a gig once where the booker, for Mock the Week was in the audience and he didn't really tend to go to a hell of a lot of live gigs. And it just so happened that the act on before me was very sort of tech heavy, lots of sort of slideshows and stuff like that. And the tech had failed in the venue, but basically been a power cut. And oh, so no. he wasn't able to do a set and the audience were just a bit like, Ugh. it was all really, you know, the energy had just been sucked out the room. But what it meant was I just had to bound on stage and be as energetic as possible. And that sort of, that then made the gig sort of work again. And I think it was purely because of that, purely because of a power cut that I then came across <laughs> as better than I was. And so uh, he... Come on, he, tell the truth. You, you pulled the plug, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I finally feel comfortable enough to say that. And uh, <laughs> to be honest, I screwed over. Fuck you, man. Um, no, I... <laughs> no, uh, uh, what was... What was it like on, on the first time you were on TV? Was it Mock Week, the first first show Mock you Week went was on? the first big yeah. TV show I'd done. I'd done like smaller bits of TV, but like mm -hmm. really, really small sort of things. And, uh, by, and I'd been on the radio loads, and so I was comfortable enough in doing that. But it was so... The thing about Mock the Week that made it different to just a regular gig was, first of all, you're sitting down. Secondly, you're on stage with other people at the same time. When you're doing stand-up, it's you on your own. You're in control of the space. Every, all the focus is on you. 
But suddenly on a panel show, you're suddenly competing with Kerry Godleman and Nish Kumar and James Acaster, and you're all trying to get your jokes in and stuff like that. So that was daunting. And also this, I was uh, like, I, I was only just working like professionally in comedy by this point. So to suddenly work with these, to suddenly be working with someone like Dara Breen was like, this is so above my pay grade. This is so above what I'm sort of used to. And it was, it was just really strange because the, it, it's difficult to picture because on the TV, on the TV, <clears> the state, the, the panel just looks completely flat. Like everyone sat in a straight line and actually you're kind of more in a semicircle. It just doesn't look like a semicircle on the screen. And because I was sat on the end, of this semicircle, my back was basically pretty much to the audience. So I couldn't really see the audience. So I had to keep sort of turning around like I was telling jokes to a passenger in the back seat sort of thing. Um, <laughs> and so I found that a bit sort of uh, kind of unsettling and um, had no idea as well because the audience is sat so far away, had no idea what it's meant to sound like. Like you can sort of hear laughter, but you're like, is that good laughter or bad? Am I getting a middling reaction? I've got no idea. I've got no idea how this is going. And because the recording goes on for three hours, I was lucky enough when I arrived at the studio for the first time uh, Angela Barnes, who was on the panel that day, she messaged me on WhatsApp and been like, "Look, if you want to come to my dressing room, have a chat about it. I'll take you through it. Honestly, you're gonna have a nice time. We're already welcoming. It's gonna, you know, it's gonna be nice." And when I arrived there, like James Acaster was stood outside my dressing room as well to sort of welcome me in and be like, "Look, let's talk about it. It's gonna be fun. It's some. Bear in mind, it goes on for like two and a half, three hours, and it's gonna get cut down to half an hour. We're all gonna say a lot of stuff that dies. We're all gonna say a lot of stuff that's gonna go down to complete silence. Don't worry, that's fine. Because if you say something that dies," immediately another comedian is going to jump in and pick up the slack. So it's all going to be fine. Don't worry, don't feel demoralized if stuff isn't going well. So they sort of kind of prepared me for the worst, I guess. And after a while, I sort of started to feel comfortable. But the only thing that felt really, truly stomach churning was the stand-up round because you're just stood at the side of a stage waiting for this wheel to stop spinning so you know what your topic is. And you're so used to when doing stand-up to being introduced onto the stage by a host or if you're the host yourself, you're so used to having someone off stage introduce you and go, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, some such a person. You're used to walking on stage to applause because that's just how a comedy night works. Mot the Week is still the only time ever anyone I know has ever had to do stand-up where you, your topic comes up and then you just have to silently take 10 steps towards the microphone and just start doing stand-up. And that, that is so, it, it's so stomach-churning the first time. It felt like a real you're like walking through the valley of the shadow of death sort of thing because you just silently walk into the microphone and you can see this audience just patiently waiting for you to start speaking and you just have to stare down the lens of a camera waiting for the green light to come on so you know that it's that's the moment to start talking and that to me is still one of the most terrifying moments of my life ever and it never got easy i did stand up on every single episode of Mot the week i ever did and it never got any less stomach churning it was always the most terrifying thing to do that one bit of the show and, and do you still, is it competitive? Do you do you know that it's going to be your turn next? Or do you literally just, you see it pop up and you you go for it, you launch and you, you grab the mic and stand up? I think it's like the, the way you're, the way you were sort of prepared was that it was kind of a bit like at school when they'd say, oh, um, look, in your English exam, there are 12 possible <clears throat> topics and two of them are going to come up. So make sure you prepare for all 12. And in the back of your mind, you're like, I'm not going to prepare for 12 different exams. But, Obviously, you don't, you know, what happens if something comes up, you've got nothing on. And so you you kind of knew that, okay, I you went into it prepared going, I'm going to have a bit of material on all these things. And worst comes to the worst, worst comes to the worst. Let's say a subject like technology comes up and you go, I have no material about technology. You just think, oh, I've, I've got a bit about a mobile phone though. I'll, t I'll start with that and then I'll move it on to another story that is vaguely linked to it. And so usually by the end, you could probably like, I, Milton Jones used to do this. A topic would come up of like, 
uh, I don't know, food. And he would do one joke about food and then immediately start talking about his 11th grandpa or something. I mean, would, he go, <laughs> no one notices. No, and it, it became a funny running joke that he would do, but his topic, what he was talking about had nothing to do with the original topic. But it was all, the rest of it was quite disciplined. It had this reputation as a show of being this terrifying bear pit, which it probably did, I think, back in the day of like Frankie Boyle and the like, that it was, it was really, really ultra competitive. But it was so relaxed and welcoming and was so kind. And because you're recording for like three hours, you're going to be able to say what you want to say. Like eventually there's going to be space for you to say what you want. And I found as well, like I was very, very probably overly chatty on that show and would just jump in because I'd get, I, I'd either get overexcited or I'd get nervous about, oh my God, if I said what I wanted to say. But eventually Daro Breen was so good when the cameras weren't on him of just putting a hand up to certain people and going, uh, and then pointing at certain people and going, you go next, then you, then you, then you. And he would sort of be the composer, as it were, of a conductor sort of working out who was going to say, who was going to speak then next. So it felt a bit more, a bit more discipline, which was nicer. I mean, everyone got a fair say. And by the time you left, all left the stage, you'd go, I think we all said the same amount. We all, we all said, we divvied that up pretty equally, I think. Is it, is it quite surreal though, when you're on that kind of show? I, I remember getting invited on to Would I Lie to You about 15 years ago. Mm. And I remember sitting there on the panel and just being a massive fan of the show and just sitting there and watching the chat, the banter back and forth and realizing that I'd said nothing for like the yes. first 10 minutes. And suddenly thought, I'm not just a person sitting at home watching this on TV. I'm actually part of the show. I've got to contribute to this too. I can't just sit there <laughs> and enjoy and, and laugh at David Mitchell. And, you know, it, it was, it's so surreal and so weird. I mean, it must have been quite bizarre for you when you've, you know, coming through the ranks, looking at these, watching these TV shows, some of your comedy heroes to then be standing alongside them and, and being on a level, a level footing with them. Yeah, it was, it was mad because Mot the Week was my favorite show. It was my favorite show when I was about 17, 18 years old. And I discovered it quite a bit later than the rest of my school friends. And I think it's partly because I think the only reason I became like a joke writer was because for some reason, jokes at my school were a bit of a currency and people were trying to compete over who was funniest. But people wouldn't, it wasn't about being funny in conversation. People would come to school with like actual jokes. Like also, you know, real sort of guy walks into a bar sort of jokes. <laughs> And so there was this kind of status thing of who had the best job. I, I, it was a really weird dynamic in my school that I, I've never really encountered anywhere else. Um, and there were a few guys in particular who were just just these amazing jokes and stories every day. And I'd be like, how are they coming up with these? These are incredible. And so I was really trying to compete and I was trying to sort of write my own stuff. I'd be like, come on, man, I've got to write some jokes. DT, I've got DT tomorrow. You know, I've got to impress them. <laughs> and, um, and, then I, I, and then I remember once a friend of mine telling me about Mot the Week and he was like, you've got, to, you've got to watch Mot the Week. It's so good. And I went home and watched it and it was amazing. And I laughed my head off. And the next day I came into school and one of the particularly funny guys was saying all these jokes, but oh, did you see in the news the other day, this thing happened? And I was like, oh, the freaky boss said that yesterday. And that's where, that's where he was getting his jokes from. And then I found out there was one guy in my class who was like a really funny cartoonist who write these really, really funny cartoons. And then I found this website called the Perry Bible Fellowship. And he got all his cartoons from there. And I was like, oh, and so by this point, I knew how to write jokes because I'd had to write my own because I was trying to compete with him. I think that's <laughs> the only reason I ended up being able to write jokes. But um, I was introduced to it by school friends. So it was something me and my family would like watch religiously every week. And it was, it was just so funny. So having the only experience I'd had before of being in like a TV studio with an audience was when I was probably about 13 years old. Me and my family were in the audience for Anton Deck's Saturday Night Takeaway. And when I was on Mot the Week, it then kind of felt the same because I was like, it, uh, where I just sort of sat back and relaxed and was like, wow, I'm getting like, well, like front row seats to Hugh Dennis. This is great. <laughs> and suddenly snap out of it after a couple of minutes and you go, oh my God, I'm on the show. Because you, uh, <laughs> you must have found this with what I like to you, but it, it, it lulls you into a full sense of security because 
because I think it's because they play the theme tune before it starts. Mm. They do actually play the theme tune. And so it makes it feel less real. I didn't think yeah. they'd play the Mock the Week theme tune in the room. I, I, so it didn't feel like it was. And then Dara would come on and go, hello, welcome, welcome, welcome to Mock the Week. And I was like, yeah, just like the show. This is just like the show. <laughs> and, and I kept like zoning out because I was just enjoying watching Nish make go on like this really funny rant. And I, it, yeah, it's so, so surreal. And I think it's partly as well because I was sat on the very end. So I felt a bit far removed from it as well. So I was watching, I was able to see the yeah. entire show in front of me. I felt I was a lot more on it as, because because my jokes were a bit weird sometimes. I then got put in what they designated as the, what they called the wackadoo chair. So it used to be like Milton <laughs> Jones's chair and then it became James Acaster's chair. And then after a while, it's, uh, that was like the chair I was regularly in. And I love being sat there because you're right in the middle of the action. You've got people to your right, people to your left. And I, I'd be a lot more on it on those episodes because I'd, be, I'd just be concentrating more because I'd be like, no, I'm on the TV show. I'm not watching the TV show. <laughs> <laughs> and did you get to the point where you were so comfortable with being on the show and being part of it that new comics came on and you were the one putting the arm around them and saying, don't worry, you're going to have a great time. This is going to be you know, a great experience. And basically given the same speech that you'd been given when you first came in. I never felt comfortable on the show. I always worried every episode that I was like, this could be my last one. If I don't do well, this could be my last one. I was always really, I never really felt comfortable. I should have done because there was so, the producers were so nice. And then they made a, an American panel show called The Great American Joke Off and I became like a big part of that. And I should I should have felt comfortable in that situation. But I, it's probably good. It's probably good and sensible to have a mild element of fear of like, okay, this is this could all go away in an instant, you know. But um, so I never really felt like, oh yeah, I'm I'm really relaxed. Like uh, I run the show. There was always someone more experienced than me on the show. I mean, mainly Hugh Dennis and Dara because they've been doing it for every episode. I did, however, when when there were people doing their first episode, I would make a point of knocking on their dressing room door and just be like, "Is everything all good?" And kind of also giving them a couple of very sneaky tips that I found worked for me and would also sort of that I knew sort of worked just universally. Um, and I always wanted to do that because I was like, I remember it being a really nice thing that Angela Barnes and James Acaster did for me, and I would like to return that favor. I always felt a bit uncomfortable doing it because because I was put on the show when I was so new, and I was really very, very new, and it was quite rare for them to put people on the show at the time who'd only done, say, like one full-length like Edinburgh Fringe show or something like that. You usually had to be sort of a bit more experienced. I did always feel a bit of a, a bit weird knocking on someone's door when it was the first episode, because usually they were so much more experienced than me. And I, I'd always think, oh, is this, is this really patronizing? But um, I, it was always just nice. It's always just nice having, to have someone knock on your door and be like, are you okay? <laughs> it's like, in any circumstance. So I hope that was how it was received. And I hope it wasn't, I hope it wasn't seen as patronizing. I'm sure it wasn't. And you'll be, they've got anecdotes now of their first time on the show and you coming in and knocking on the door. And, and I'm sure they pass on that to the next, you know, when, it, when that comes their turn in their career, they, they yeah. carry on, they I, pass yeah, that matter on. Yeah, unless the story they're telling is, I got a knock on the door, and as soon as he left, I was like, who the fuck is that guy? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Does he work here? Yeah. I wanted to ask on the sport thing, was the, was hmm. the high jump headbutt, was that your sporting misadventure, or have there been, have there been other misadventures in a sporting um, sense for you either? I think Jess, Jessica Ennis, yes. the, the, uh, asking if she was a heptathlete, despite that not being me engaging in any sporting activity, is still one of the worst. I, still, I think my worst ever, which is something friends of mine still bring up to this day, is in the summer at uni, we'd always just play enormous football matches in the park with just a, a, a quantity of us that was so much larger than the average football team. And um, it became sort of a running thing that if someone was absolutely belting it in from like 30 yards, 
they'd say the name of the footballer that they were most attempting to replicate. So if you're hitting it in on the volley from 30 yards, he'd be like, Gerard, that sort of thing. <laughs> they'd say it themselves. It was a weird thing. It was, And it wasn't really done with a sense of fun. It was done with a sense of, no, I'm Steven Gerrard in this situation. And I remember going blank once and just being unable to think of any footballers. And it was like a tap-in as well. It was like an opportunity for a tap-in. I was basically on the goal line. And I volleyed it over the bar, which it, like it was really hard to do that. I had to get the ball back <laughs> under the bar to get it over. And the only footballer that came to mind as I blasted it over was I yelled, Collins John! And it's something that friends of mine still bring up. They were like, what an obscure, temporary Fulham footballer that you, when was he part of the zeitgeist? When was he ever part of the conversation? So anytime any of us are playing football, Collins John will get yelled at. <laughs> That's superb. And was he famous for sticking it over the bar, or was it just a, a complete coincidence that you weren't able complete to? Complete coincidence. Tap it in? I was, I was uh, genuinely trying to have in. Basically, because I was really late to playing football, I didn't start till I was about four. I genuinely didn't play football for the first time until I was about 14. By which point, it's way too late to start. It's way too late to learn any vague skill or anything like that. But then it was when I had, I had quite good reactions. And so by the time I was about 16, I was suddenly like, you know what? I do want to play football. I do really want to play football, but I'm too bad to go out. I'll, I'll play in goal. And so I was, de- I was always the goalkeeper because I just, I was quite good in goal. I also just couldn't dribble or pass to save my, I just couldn't do it. And I still can't to this day. I've got less than no accuracy on my foot. Every shot is a brand new shot. Every time I pass, it will go in a wildly different direction to the last. I could play, I could hit 10 balls of the same level of power, the same part of my foot. They will all go in varsity. Someone will go backwards. I, there's no correlation. I have there's something wrong with my feet and I don't know what it is. So I felt really comfortable in goal. But it was on this one occasion, I just got cocky and just ran out onto the pitch. And I, it still like, still kind of haunts me. In the same way that like your best sporting achievements stay with you. And my best is, my best is still very middling. It was, we, we, um, the last day of school, we did, I think, 60 v 60 football on the pitch. Wow. It was on the school field. So obviously much bigger than a football pitch, but with, you know, normal goals and stuff like that. And I remember bundling in the winning goal and having 59 other guys pile on top of me and nearly dying. But it was like, <laughs> that was our first goal. And I, re- I remember that goal so clearly. It was identical to Lampard's equaliser in the two-all draw against Portugal in year 2004 before we went out on penalties, where he the ball came to his feet at his back to goal and he spam around and just sort of like bundled it in while falling over. That was That's exactly, and I remember that so vividly, and that's a good memory. And at the same time, me belting it over the bar and yelling, Collins John, stays with me to the same extent. <laughs> and did you shout, Lampard, as you kicked it? Yeah, I should have done. I should have done. <laughs> in your mind, you can just pretend you did. You look back I know, I will. You Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to reframe yeah. that memory. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> No, it's, um, I mean, yeah, I remember those games at school when you had literally, felt it started off, you know, lunchtime, you'd eat your lunch as fast as you could, then you'd all run out and the game would have started and more and more people would join. And by the end of the game, as you say, it'd be like the whole class versus the whole class, it'd be 30 against 30. And that was, and there'd be yeah. multiple games happening on the same bit of yeah, yeah, yeah. playground, <laughs> you know, running head on into people that are in different, different matches, different balls flying yeah. around. But oh, I love that. Well, I, I suggested I suggested with a match that large, whenever we did matches that large, we should have done four-way football and it's on a square pitch with goals on each side and you've got four different teams competing over one, maybe two balls. And we should have done it that way. Like, well, how, well, do you, well, how do you get on in the asked. match? Oh, we came third. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the questions that we, have, we often ask our guests is, you know, if you could invent a, a new sport, what would it be? That's the best answer we've had. I mean, we've only been right. going for a, a few weeks, but do you know what? 
I would take that. That's great. Do you know? Do you know what a friend of mine invented a great sport years ago, and we played it on a stag do. And his name was Dom. His name is Dom. And the sport was called Domball, and it was a taped up ball of newspaper. And then the bats you had were taped up rolls of newspaper. And it was basically just one-on-one hockey um, in which it was just a face-off to get it you know, in, in, into the goals and stuff like that. But you had to sort of whack it. And it was just a combination of like hockey, football, and wrestling. And it was amazing. And I don't know why I didn't monetize the idea. It probably exists to some extent somewhere else. But do I, I, I will fly the flag for Domball more than I will four-way football. And could you still, could you hit the other person with the, the rolled up newspaper or was you, it just the you ball could, you, you could, yeah, it wasn't really, because it wasn't like Millwall brick levels of like folded over. It was just, it was just <laughs> in a cone, like, like you'd have a bouquet of flowers in, so it would have no effect. It was like swatting a bee. <laughs> but there was no greater sensation than a goal line clearance resulting in a goal, like doing a powerful goal line clearance that then hit it the other end into the goal. Was j- moments like that would just stay with, <laughs> stay with you for you. a lifetime. <laughs> yeah, you can, you can picture that in a teary Gaza montage at the end of a World Cup. It's just really good stuff. Were you the Domball champion or? No, I was no, not the Domball no. champion. But that's it. It was basically, everyone, I'm really into Domball now. So you'd have two teams of like 10 all lined up and everyone was assigned a random number. And then what happens is the ref would just go, Number seven, and then both number sevens from each team have got to run it. So it was like it was different individual face-offs, you know. And is this taking place in a pub or in a in an actual? It would take place in like it would take place in like a meeting. It would basically take place in like essentially an office meeting room. So (laughs) you know that specific office carpet that's designed to take skin off. That it was like really painful, really painful to play in. I was going to ask about Edinburgh because you're. I guess you got time off from the day job. Have you to head up to Edinburgh or? I do. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh. Yeah. Very kindly. Otherwise, getting up at five a.m. Uh, <laughs> while trying to do shows in the evening would would be, not be conducive. <laughs> when I took the show on tour, I was like, I need. To, I said to my tour booker, "It's like this needs to be on weekends. I can't do the tour. I can't do the tour on weekdays. I've tried to do that before. I've like driven back overnight from Newcastle, gotten back home at four in the morning, and gotten straight out of my car so I could get the bus." straight down to the radio show and Oof. just pulled an all-nighter. Um, only time I've ever fallen asleep on air, um, which uh, I hope will never happen again. Um, so no, it is time off from the radio. It's just, I, I like to focus all my efforts on, the way I see it is like, the show is one hour. The least I could do is dedicate all of my energy from that one day into that one hour and make it, you know, put in, a, put in as much energy as I would if I was working eight hours in an office, you know? That's what we need to do, Matt. You know, we've got one hour. We need to put Mm. That's, what always, that's what I've always you know. said about your career, Chris. Lazy. That's how I've always. <laughs> that's how I've always perceived if I, you. If I just pull my finger out, yeah. <laughs> yeah t- tell us about the show then. What's what's it all about? Uh, so the show is a show I took to the Edinburgh Festival last year, and um, previously I'd sort of written a new show, sort of every year and every year and every year. And um, so uh, the show is all about. I will say uh, the most I've ever been saying to advertise it is the show is about a baby. I'm not saying if it's my baby or anyone else's baby. The show is about a baby. But the way I've always written shows is I will write thousands and thousands of jokes each year. Then I'll whittle them down to like my favorite, say 300. And then I'll group them together into categories and then reverse engineer a storyline from there, which may or may not be heavily falsified or (laughs) to some extent not true. Um, And that's just the way I've written shows every year. And that's how I do it. And so this one is no different, but it is by far my best show. It was the most, it was definitely the best received show um, I've done. And so I thought this year, I was like, there are still plenty of people I know who wanted to see it, who didn't have a chance to see it. 
So I was like, why not just do the show again to a bigger uh, audience? Well, to do a show in a bigger room, not necessarily a bigger audience, but a bigger room <laughs> and hope that the audiences fill it. That's the dream. So yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of the show. And I, yeah, it's, it's nice to go back to Edinburgh and, and do it again. Not, a, not in an arrogant way. It's like, a, yeah, it's a victory lap. It's not that at all. It's just, <laughs> I, want, I, I wanted to keep doing the show. Um, it's quite a physically painful show. For, I, I realized this year I'm a much more physical comedian than I used to be. And I used to be quite, not stationary, I used to pace up and down the stage and stuff like that. But now I have been described as, um, I really throw myself into it. Uh, uh, quite literally, and I caused myself quite a few injuries. Not in a serious way, but just um, <laughs> my knees hurt all the time now. So, yeah, I hope that intrigues people. Getting old, mate. That's, that happens. It comes to us all. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, listen, thank you so much for, for giving us your time. I, mean, I appreciate you've been up since the crack of dawn for your, for your oh, day job. So, no, um, Matt, yeah. Chris, thank you so much for having me both. Honestly, it's been a, it's been a real joy. It's been nice reliving some truly mortifying <laughs> moments from my life. <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen, uh, yeah, good luck with the with the tour. Good luck with the Fringe Festival. And um, yeah, hope to see you soon. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It's been great fun. Thanks a lot. All the best. Great. All right, cheers. Bye. Thanks, Bye. Take care. Bye.